Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fittendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the Mojo Radio Show. The little program designed to help you get your mojo working in and out of work. All we do is find interesting people to have a chat to. We reckon they've got their mojo working in some aspect of their life. We chat to them, ask their opinions, their tips, their tools, the stuff that they do in their world that we can apply to our world to help us live better and one where we feel as though our mojo is working and probably just as importantly, giving you stuff that you can help other people with. So the fee for listening to this little program is to take a piece of gold and share it with somebody else to help them get their mojo working, to be of service to others is kind of what this program's all about, driving the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, welcome to this week's program. Thanks, mate. The other fee for listening to this show is having to sit through us for an hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were say, please send a packet of Tim Tams. <laughs> After six seasons, you'd have to yeah. think at least those buggers would go, ah, it's a bit of fun, let's send them a carton. Nothing. Nada. Nix, naught. Not even a fragment of a bone. Nothing. Not no. even an email saying, onya. You know what I did see on YouTube the other day? There was a video of the old Arnott's factory. I thought, I wonder if that was the part of the factory where they made tin tans. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's old, because they didn't <laughs> That's right. send us any product. But thank you to our friends at Dosecki who did oh, send us beer in a lovely letter. Indeed. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. And speaking of Dosecki, uh, around the grounds, let's say hello to the whole crew. AP, are you there? Reporting for duty, sir. And the beautiful, very talented, the dulcet tones of our automated studio assistant, the only one in the world that we know of. Good morning, Lola. Hello, boys. All right. Now, a quick update before I throw to Robbo for a brand new segment. Uh, Stan Peak, I wrote back to Stan to see how he's doing now. Mm. And apparently his heart issue was a genetic thing. And oh, wow. one of his plugs was completely jammed. They've unjammed it now and he reckons he's actually better than ever. So that's good news. No damage to the heart muscle or anything like that? No, look, he's, as he always is, uh, saying, yes, my friend, I'm back (laughs) better than ever. So just great news because he is one of the great mojo guests 
of all times in our six seasons. Absolutely. Uh, so that's good news. So before we start the program, brand new segment's called Robbo's Remarkable Fact. Robbo's Remarkable Fact. It's about time. Let's go. I had to do some research for this. What are you doing to me? Well, you're going to do something. You had to sit behind the panel all day. Yeah, I know. I actually got two facts. They're sort of two really short ones, but they're rolled into one. Did you know that for every human being on Earth, there are 1.6 billion ants? And did you know that the total weight of all those ants is equal to the weight of the entire human population of the planet? I did not know that. There you go. Two for, two for the price of one to get this, to get this segment started. Actually, I'll tell you, this is an interesting thing. Um, the Mojo Radio Show, we look to interview great people to extract gold, right? Yep. I've had a lot of emails recently from people or feedback from people who love that about the show and also they and they love the fact they get the gold but also they love the music and I had a guy called Dion wrote to me last week and he said he'd never heard of scar music oh really uh, and he listened to the to the show with Art Markham which was full of gold and yeah. he plays in a scar band mm. And he'd never heard of Scar, went online and found a clip of the top 10 Scar bands of all time, like mm. the Selector and the Specials. And, of course, the commercial version was Madness. Uh, and the Mighty Mighty Boston's. And just it was just cool. But they had Bob Marley in there, which I thought was interesting because Scar wow. is kind yeah. of a combo of brass and reggae and it's just great rude boy dancing music because I grew up on it. So... That's another remarkable fact that people find these discoveries not just in gold for business and life, but also music, which mm. is quite. I don't know. There's many shows that could do that. I don't know that there's too many shows quite like us. Anyway, is there? <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. The Mojo Radio Show. I'd like to bust your butt, but I can't. I got another problem here. I got to send somebody from this squadron to Miramar. I got to do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I gotta give you your dream shot. I'm gonna send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. So this week, folks, we are headed to Top Gun. Our guest this week is Christian Boo Bacusis. Call sign Boo, served as an FA-18 fighter pilot for 11 years with the Royal Australian Air Force. Now, today, his company is called Afterburner. And what he basically does with his organisation is shows us the simple stuff that he learnt in the RAF as an elite jet fighter pilot to help us get our work done faster and more successfully with more precision. It's about making clearer decisions. Uh, as you'll hear with Boo, it's about working with agility, putting plans into action with more speed, more precision, and ultimately more success. And I think one of the things you'll find from this episode, which is really very profound, which is something missing in business, which I think is a great outtake from this show is the debrief process. So that all being said, Boo, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me, Gary. When people meet you today, when they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? I think today, and I know the word is overused and, and abused a bit, I, I think entrepreneur really uh, is, is the classic uh, uh, definition of probably what I do today. So I either start up or acquire uh, businesses that need transformation. Uh, and I have a little stable of, of businesses I'm working on at the moment. So I think entrepreneur. And, and then uh, in the last four or five years, I would have probably added speaker uh, and and coach uh, to that as well. So, yeah, uh, uh, 
I don't know, I don't really like boxes. I'm certainly not an expert. I don't like that <laughs> word. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I've had a really interesting life, I think. I've really enjoyed everything I've done. I'm super fulfilled and content and happy. So I don't know, maybe the best way uh, to describe what I do is yeah, the pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. It's interesting, Boo, because on the show, we've had a lot of guys that have come out of the military and being an elite jet fighter pilot, you were medically discharged. But when I speak with you, you speak about the future, the stuff you're doing now with excitement. Yet a lot of guys who come out of the military have a hard time transitioning from the exciting world you lived in to a world now that they're excited about. Tell, just give us that background of how you transitioned and how you were able to do it. Why, why could you do it when so many struggle? Interesting point that you make, and I was reflecting on this over the weekend because someone uh, asked me uh, to deliver a, a very specific keynote and, and I had to deliver a brief for a client. And the brief was uh, someone who has triumphed over adversity. And I was thinking about that. And one of the things I guess I try and avoid in life is reflect on myself and what I do. I try and avoid those narcissistic tendencies. And uh, I, I think it was probably the first time I, I, I really – uh, reflected on everything from being a, a kid uh, all the way to where, where I am today. And, and I think when you're a teenager and you go through that period of your life is where, where the context of, of life and achieving things comes from. And uh, I think for me, nothing was ever easy for me. Uh, I was not a good-looking kid. Uh, I was not a, a particularly physical uh, kid. I was just in the middle of the pack for, for everything. Uh, and, and I really, really just wanted to have one or two things uh, just to say that I achieved. And I guess I always have an eye to the future and an eye in, and a foot in today. And one of the things I thought when I was at school was, well, if I ever have kids, what do I want them to know about dad at school? Um, and, and one of the things I just made a commitment to do at school was to be in the first eight. Uh, in the rowing, in the rowing crew. Uh, so from the age of fourteen, I just did everything I could to be in that crew. I I rowed on weekends. I I rowed in the middle of winter. I was the only kid down at the rowing sheds, and I was the smallest. I was the smallest rower um, in that crew. And I and I finally got there. And, and the rowing coach came up to me when I successfully uh, made it in there, and I was happy to say I was the number six out of eight. And he, and he said to me, he said, mate, I just, I just never thought you would, you would make it. He says, there's nothing about you that, to look at that would say that you should be here and you're here. And, and he said, that's just testament to the amount of effort that you put in. And, and I guess from there, it just made me realize that putting effort in and having a singular passionate focus kind of equals a win. Uh, and, and without really consciously thinking about that, it's something that I've done for my entire life. And, and I think all of those journeys, everyone tells you you're not going to succeed. You don't, you don't kind of believe in yourself that you're going to succeed, but you just put all that aside and put your head down and, and keep going. So when it came to transitioning from the military, for me, uh, it was just another piece of adversity I had to deal with. And, and you've got to remember, during my flying career, this condition, ankylosing spondylitis, is a very it's very, very painful. Like it's a, every morning you wake up and you, you feel like an 80-year-old man. You, you, 
your toes hurt, every joint in your feet hurt, your knees hurt, your hips hurt, you've got sciatica, your back's in pain, your hips are in pain, your neck's sore, every single part of your body is aching and then you start moving and it goes from 100% pain to 50% and you live with 50% pain during the day and then you go flying and then when you fly, it push and you land, it puts it back up to like 150% pain. So much pain that there were times I couldn't even walk up the stairs to the debrief. I had to wait till everyone left so I could pull myself up on the railing because my legs barely worked because of the, the pain in my spine. So by the time I guess that condition got so bad, I couldn't fly anymore. I guess, again, one, one foot in today, one eye in the future, I just had to do, to do something. And, and at that time, it was uh, Afghanistan, probably three years past that. Uh, Iraq war uh, had just sort of finished. Uh, and for ex-military guys, it was a bit of a bonanza in those sort of post-war-torn countries. So I thought, well, I have absolutely no skill other than flying uh, a high-performance jet fighter. If I just go there, I'm sure I'll hopefully figure something out. And I had a, a, um, uh, 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 I was married at the time. Uh, my wife was pregnant, so it was a quite of a big call. But I guess I sort of thought, well, you know, everything I've, every time I've just really buckled down and committed to something, it's kind of worked out. So I went over there and pretty quickly and with, with a business partner, my best mate, Tom, uh, who was instrumental in this with me, uh, we, uh, we managed to land $2.5 million contract as our first contract and grew the business from there into you know, a pretty decent-sized business. Uh, so for me, the transition was, uh, I think when people make a transition, let's being a fighter pilot's not really in the military. I'll let you in a little bit of a secret as well. Uh, they call fighter pilots <laughs> they call us civvies in uniform. Um, I didn't even own a set of you know uh, of blues, a set of a set of formal uniform. I didn't even own them for the last eight years. My, I lost them in a flood and never bought a new pair. <laughs> so I managed to dodge every formal ceremony for about eight years. Um, so so the transition's probably a bit easier for us as opposed to sort of a special forces or a, or a really intense uh, military highly a discipline regimented uh, framework. We're less like that. So maybe the transition was a little bit uh, bit different. Uh, but the, the bottom line was, you know, I've transitioned maybe eight significant transitions, literally left left a business, left an income stream and gone straight back to zero, some, sometimes by choice, sometimes uh, by external factors that I had no choice in. But what I've learned is yeah, someone's, it was you, Gary, but someone said, what advice would you, Give, give yourself if you're a kid. Mm. And, I, and, and my advice would be just to say everything's going to be okay. Just do it. It, it will be all right. Uh, and, and it just kind of works out. It's amazing what the human being is capable of when you put yourself out there and you really have to think and you really have to problem solve. Uh, you can figure it out and, and, and you get there in the end. You just mentioned a highly regimented framework and I've heard you speak, Boo, and you said that a high-performance jet fighter pilot has to remember and operate from five, for 500 items. So checklists must be a big part of the standard operating procedure for you guys. And what, the reason I ask the question is it's such an interesting thing when you say high-performance and then when you hear high-performance business leaders today, they build these rituals and routines in order to say what they'll do and also that then says what they won't do. And there's normally, I don't know, five or six steps, but it helps to write it out to see it. But then you've got 500 items and you've got everything on the line. 
Tell me about how you, or did you use checklists and how did you organize those 500 items into a standard operating procedure where you could execute time after time? At the time, you, you don't even think about it. You just do it. It's, that is the system. That is the, what works. That's what we've developed over years and years. And I'll talk about how we end up with these great systems uh, a little bit later. Uh, I think you know, 15 million bucks in training uh, in today's dollars, that's what a fighter pilot gets invested in them. So with that sort of investment and one-on-one attention and uh, and no option, you want to fly a fighter jet, you have to remember uh, 400 checks. No that's 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 the route to the to the to the job that's the route to dancing around the sky in this jet fighter if you don't know them you're not going to do it and this goes back to my point before you, you, people have no idea what the average person is capable of because they just don't take themselves there no one takes them there you, you spoke about companies bringing in procedures and that the average organization and I've worked with hundreds what they consider a procedure for a fighter pilot is is like a pedal scooter versus a high-performance road bike. <laughs> the, and, and I think one of the – people have innovation and creativity completely wrong. They think that the best way to be creative and get things done is to have highly collaborative, open plan, less structure. It's absolute nonsense. If you can do basic things right, and for us the basic thing is do 400 checks to get the aircraft started out and back again – then you can be creative and you can innovate because you're not mucking around, figuring out, oh, where's the on switch again? What have I done with my car keys? Yeah, where's the, oh, what's, what's the boss decided to do today? Oh, we're going to do it differently today because the boss had a great idea on the weekend. It, it just doesn't happen. And, and more and more, as I work with companies, and uh, I think if I, didn't, if I hadn't become an entrepreneur and I hadn't become a speaker, I probably wouldn't have looked back at what I did, I just would have taken it for granted. But the mm-hmm. more I see people, the more I see people not achieve their goals, the more I see them give up, the more I look into a crowded room of, of people and see people who are overweight, unhappy, disengaged, stuck on their mobile phones, the more I realize that we've been sold a con. And, and the more I realize that simplicity, routine and structure really allows us to build a framework that we can then achieve to. And I think one of the things that we've taken away from ourselves now with the participation award, with, with just doing a good job and being rewarded for effort, is we've denied ourselves the chemical reactions in our body that come about from winning. And when you win, you feel better. And when you win, you want to be healthy. You want to go to the gym. You want to eat well because you've got all of this help from your internal chemistry. Uh, so I think it's important that we uh, allow ourselves to do that, but but more importantly, allow ourselves to win on things that are really small and achievable, not winning these insane life goals that are that that take years and years, and we get frustrated because it's not happening for us tomorrow in this in this world of instant gratification. So so when you're talking about checklists, Gary, uh, and and look, I don't I don't. You know, regiment my day here. I don't have a big checklist on the wall and the kids and, and myself. We go and follow all of this routine. Nothing like that. Uh, but but what, it, what it highlights to me is if I'm, if I'm not having clarity or I'm feeling down or I'm not getting uh, stuff done that I need done, I need to sit down and, 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 and work out a few steps that I need to achieve one after the other to, to get to a, a small destination that kick, kicks the can along. It's funny, Boo, hearing you talk about the world of a uh 
pilot and then you compare that to the world of a business leader. And it's been said, and I've heard you talk about this before as well, that how we train is basically how we fight. And if you think about business today, when pretty much every meeting starts late, there's no agenda, people are distracted, there's poor communication, it's an excuse and blame somebody else culture. It must then reflect on, that's the training bit, that when you're working with a customer, surely has to reflect somewhere. And that, in your terms, must be giving the advantage to the opposition because how you train is how you fight. And we're in you know, the marketing warfare, brand warfare, business warfare against a competitor. Do you see a lot of that where the standards in the business, they talk about it, but it's not being delivered at that small level you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. I, I, walk in, I can walk into any business and, and within 10 seconds, tell you whether or not they're a high-performing business or whether they'll achieve their goals easily or, or difficult. And it's just a simple question. What are you trying to achieve? And if, if, if a leader or a team member can't describe that within 10 seconds, and I'm not saying an elevator, they don't have to explain it to you in 10 seconds. It might be quite an elaborate conversation. But if, they, if they're unable to tell you straight away what the point of, it, of, the point of their existence is, then you, you won't know. I have worked in companies, huge organisations, and it took six months for a thousand people to actually figure out what their job was. Can you imagine a thousand people working every day and they weren't sure what their job was? And that is a very common thing because most people are reactive. They sit there, they wait to do what they're told, and then they then they go and do it. Uh, so uh, it's uh, I think when, when it comes to um, organisations, it's just an extension of, of the schoolyard, really. Um, we, we run most of organisation using a social and relationship construct, and that's important. Don't get me wrong. You, you've got you – know, one of the things – you don't have to operate like a fighter squadron every day. No, one, no one's going to die as a result of poor performance, and, and, and in a fighter squadron, that's a very real, a real outcome. But if you can capture the fighter pilot ethos and the simple methodologies just a, a few times a week – you, you really, really push the needle. And when we say train the way we fight, I like to think of that as, as being prepared. Consider a meeting as, as, as the fight. When we say fight, that's the mission. That's, that's our job. So, so if we're going into a meeting, the training is the preparation. You, you, you prepare for the meeting. You, we don't even use agendas. You, if you plan well enough, you, you have a plan and you talk to the plan. You never need an agenda. An agenda is just, oh, I need to make up six things to talk about today, uh, which is, again, a, a waste of time. So if, we, if, we able to, if we're able to, to be prepared there, then, then we'll do very well. Most businesses exist to serve someone. Not, there's not many businesses left anymore, unless you're an airport, uh, where you have a monopoly and you can do whatever you like. You, you generally have a customer. Uh, and any time there's an interaction, be it to an external stakeholder uh, or even an internal stakeholder, whenever you're engaging someone that's not you, that is a f- fight's a strong word, obviously, but it's that's that's you've you've got an outcome that you need to achieve there. So so training means be prepared. Training means do the same thing every time. So when you have a different outcome based on the same activity, you learn something from it. And then you can adjust that same activity in the context. And that's Gary, where we talk about the ultimate tool for success, and that's the ability to create and sustain situational awareness. Um, that's clarity. That's, that's when every conversation you have enhances someone's life, enhances their ability to do their job. And if you think day to day how many people you meet like that, it's a very, very small group of people. Let's just talk about clarity for a second. And 
Let's compare the flight room briefing with that of a leadership group, a board, or I don't know, a senior leadership team. And if we talk about clarity and you've used the word mission, quite often the leader will stand, talk about the mission, send out an email, and it's heard and it's seen, but it's not understood. Yet when they leave the flight room, each pilot, whoever it may be, not only heard it and saw it, but actually understands it. In your mind, how do I get that clarity? How do I get the clarity where from the leader through the leadership team who are going to now execute and lead from the front, how do I ensure that they've actually understood it as opposed to it being a nice poster on the wall, which people, if they're lucky, can recite, but most truly don't understand it? Fundamentally, human beings are designed to be distracted, okay? We we are designed to uh, look at everything around us in order to survive because if something happens to us and we don't notice it, you know, in the old days, a bear jumping out of the out of the forest and today walking across a road, uh, we, we're designed to, to be distracted. So we're constantly seeking out um, random sources of information to make decisions about as to whether they're safe or not. When it comes to, to, to focusing on something, uh, and this is why culture is so important because culture is something that lasts for a long time, and it's something everyone can identify with. When it, when it comes to getting a message across or a transformation, the key is consistency and, and just understanding how truly complex it is for a human being to absorb a single piece of information given the amount of information that's in the world today. Situational awareness is the, the how we describe it, it's the right piece of information at the right time that empowers you to make a decision and that decision equals action. Now, if you don't create an emotional connection to the information and you don't create a what's in it for the team and what's in it for me, then it's just another piece of information which just gets put into the into the, the it doesn't even make the recesses of the memory. And what I always find fascinating about humans is leaders who get into these leadership roles, typically they've gone to university, they've learned a new piece of information. They've learned, they've written a thesis on one small piece of strategy and it's taken them 12 months and they get graded on it and they might get a B. Then when it comes to their business, they spend three hours with a team in a room, whack it in an email, stand up in a town hall, tell everyone what it's done and they expect people to go and do it. There's a total disconnect between the reality of what it takes for you as an individual to observe a piece of information and then the expectation that 10,000 people are just going to pick it up because you open your mouth. We're in complete denial of how the human being uh, talks and from the leader, he's he's running his checklist, which is, okay, new strategy, 2019, check, engage the full management team, uh, check, CFO, COO, uh, CTO, CMO, check, check, check. Yep, as, as a group of uh, six or seven people, we're happy. Uh, transmit strategy to people, uh, email, check, a town hall, uh, check, uh, strategy on a page, check, email, email, uh, one conversation, job's done. Right, what's the next, what's the next strategy? And the, and the process starts again. And none of it filters down. Uh, no one knows what they have to do day-to-day to achieve that. Uh, and no one really changes their day-to-day job. So what happens is the top of the company starts moving off in a different direction. Everyone below there is doing the, 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 the same job they were doing five years ago. And, and when I work with an organisation, it takes six months for, for an organisational change to filter down to the bottom at, at least. And that six months is 
the last person in the bottom of the organization to hear the message properly and figure out what they need to do before they start doing it. Um, so, so that's I, and, I, and I think, uh, Gary, what it comes down to is um, for a fighter pilot, again, just reflecting on it, you really do operate at the limit of human performance, uh, both mentally and physically. So you, you understand how badly the human body really, really does work uh, and how, how limited we are with our, with our brain. It, it's, it's really quite, it's a Commodore 64 uh, when it comes to processing and we think, we think it's a next-gen iPhone. Uh, and and, and then that, that comes about because of this thing called optimism bias, which is this cognitive illusion where we always think everything's much easier uh, than it is. We're much smarter than we really are and everyone else is uh, stupid and causes problems for me. Uh, so so there's, there's these few little human performance things. There's not a lot, actually. There, there's maybe four or five little elements of our humanness that when we identify and overcome, and there was like a... It was like a profound moment 60 years ago when fighter, the fighter pilot community figured this out. And when they figured it out, it transformed, it transformed their performance drastically, 500% improvement. Uh, I'll just give you a little story, Gary, if it's okay. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. La- la- last week, uh, we ran a po- I, I own um, the, the publishing company that uh, made the magazine I used to read when I was six years old. So the magazine that inspired me to become a pilot I now own, which is, for me, I think, just such a, a wonderful treat to be able to do that in life. And, and part of that business, one of the cool things we get to do is podcast um, pilots. And, and I podcasted a guy the other day. Um, his name uh, is Taz. He's Norwegian. And I met Taz when I was on exchange in the Royal Air Force. And, and in, in the squadron, uh, during, the, during the Iraq war, they sent all the foreign pilots down to the Falkland Islands um, to defend the Falklands while everyone else was off in Iraq. So there was Germans, Dutch, Kiwis, Aussies, French, uh, American uh, fighter pilots all down in, in the Falkland Islands. And we just thought it was fascinating that name any other organisation in the world where you can take a person from Australia, put them in an Italian uh, fighter squadron, and within 24 hours they can be fully integrated, fly a mission, achieve the outcome 98% of the time and come back uh, and land for, for pasta and Chianti. There is no organization on the planet that is, has achieved that degree of alignment, 24 hours. So we were all foreign pilots, all working in the one location, com- completely synchronized, all speaking English, all flying the same mission, and all being incredibly, incredibly successful. It, it, it doesn't exist. It, it, you take someone from, from a company in, in Australia and they go to the same company in America, it's a six-month induction process, training it, 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 it's and, and still they don't exactly know what their job is. Just to set this up for, for everybody listening, you and I went on the road and we did a number of speeches together recently. One of the things that I heard for the first time I saw you speak and got to have dinner with you, with you and Peeps, your wingman, one of the things that I really loved that I wanted to specifically hone in on today was the debrief. Because to me, in this world right now, the debrief is super powerful, but we either don't do it or we don't know how to do it. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me is when you did the afterburner presentation at this roadshow and you talked about the debrief, you showed the Blue Angels. And one of the things on this clip that you and Peeps then reinforced was the Blue Angels are the best of the best of the best, yet they said 
in their words, we've never done a perfect show in 65 years. But what I took from that was how they debrief and then hearing you and Peeps talk about how you guys do a debrief and how that could be used in business or a social engagement or a footy team or whatever it may be. Just talk us through the debrief. Another way of uh, explaining a debrief is is to say be positive about self-critiquing your performance every day. Uh, and and uh, one thing uh, I think we're all terrified as humans is is to be criticised. Um, people are incredibly sensitive and, and, and we know that because we run debrief workshops and and we get people to go through this process, and it's incredibly hard, and and people just do not like it. Uh, so debriefing in uh, is is a tool that that really transformed the fighter pilot. That's what that's what we kind of figured out sixty years ago. And debriefing is where we sit down and we ask ourselves a, a couple of very very simple questions. And, and the first thing is, all right, guys, guys and girls, what did we go out to achieve today? What actually happened? Uh, is there a gap in our performance between where we want to be and where we were? Why does that gap exist? And this is called the root cause analysis. And everyone gets so hung up in business about the root cause analysis because we love that because that's picking that that picks problems in everyone's performance. It makes us feel better because everyone else did something wrong. But for us, we're only looking for one thing out of that root cause, just one reason. There's always a million reasons why things don't go right or wrong. Uh, but we just want to find one reason. And, and the most important step for us, and this is what I – Goes back to for me from to my life. Uh, I did subconsciously as a teenager. Did consciously as a fighter pilot, and I have to do consciously every day. The next one is what's my response? What am I going to do tomorrow to close that gap to to get closer to where I want to be? And every time we do that, we create what I spoke about before, which is that that win for the next day. And even if we lose, even if we didn't get the right result during the day in the debrief, the fact that we've come up with something to do tomorrow means that we've had a win today. And we say as fighter pilots, the debrief is more important than the mission itself because we know at the end of the day when we leave work, right, whether things went right or went wrong, I've got something to do tomorrow that gives me hope that I'm going to improve. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine everyone inside an organisation leaving every single day with a spring in their step because they know tomorrow they've got one very specific task to do as a team, as an individual, that's going to improve their performance and get them closer to that bonus, get them closer to that sale, get them closer to the things they have to do every day to get a pat on the back and feel part of a community. And one of the reasons why we're able to do that in the Air Force is we created a a, a culture called Nameless and Rankless, and we don't debrief every day. And don't, don't get me wrong, the Air Force is full of politics and social relationship management. And outside of a fighter squadron, you know, we do things uh, well, but we certainly don't do them as well as we would do in our day-to-day um, mission cycle. Uh, and, and nameless and rankless means when we're having these meetings, and sometimes they go for half an hour, sometimes two hours, depends on the, depends on the, on the mission, we, everyone is equal. Chief of Air Force, the bog rat, what we call the junior pilot in the squadron. <laughs> everyone, ev- everyone just looks at their performance in terms of the mission objectives and their personal objectives and what happened. And the objective is for everyone to put their own hand up and say, I made the mistake, I fess up and I'm going to fix it tomorrow and this is how. And the beauty about this process is it's, it's wonderful for mentoring because one of the things you find organisationally is the more senior people are, the less they follow policy, the less they follow procedures, the more they focus on instinct and experience, and they actually make more mistakes than the junior people in the squadron uh, or in the organisation. 
the junior people in the, in the organisation, they, they understand all the policies, all the procedures, that's how they're assessed. So by bringing this group together in an open forum, we, we, we sprinkle the experience from the, uh, more, from the older element and, the, and the, the longer serving members, we sprinkle that down into the junior members of the squadron. And the junior members of the squadron hold the senior leadership accountable because they're across all the detail. So everyone gets a turn to pick up exactly what the performance gap was. And once we've all self-identified, if we've missed something, then we step in as a team and go, okay, dash two. Uh, um, you, you, you were uh, behind the timeline there, what we call behind the jet. Uh, and, uh, and if you had just done this particular manoeuvre, uh, have you thought about that? That could have put you in a better position. And that individual, oh, actually, that's a really good point. I'm going to take it on board. I'm going to try that tomorrow. It's, it, uh, and that is that is that is a very powerful tool. Um, and in some in some ways, uh, debriefing is a bit like cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, it's 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 a structured way in which to process your thoughts to give emotional situations a context and make it logical and decompress the situation. Uh, so you can move out the door. It, it, just imagine any organisation that has a, this incredibly supportive peer group that sits down with you every day with the sole intent of helping you do your job better tomorrow. I mean, it's just such a, it's a great, it's just such a great cultural environment for any organisation to adopt. See, I think where it breaks down that I hear regularly is they talk about the result, what happened. Then they talk about the reason, but that's a blaming somebody else. What I don't hear then is a response. And the Blue Angels piece you showed and you just mentioned it is, here's the result, here's the reason. And their response was, dash two will say, uh, I'll fix my safeties and I'm glad to be here. But we seem to live in this blame culture where we don't do the last bit, where we blame somebody else, but we don't take ownership of it to go, I get it, and here's what I'm going to do to fix it so it won't happen again. We seem to finish it part two. And we had a guy on the show called JP Donnell, who was a sniper who was in the SEALs, served with Chris Kyle. And when we talked about his own family life, which had broken down and led to a divorce, he said, it was entirely my fault. He said, I take complete ownership of the risk of, and, I'm, and today I work every day to fix it. And... I don't know. It just seems like a really powerful thing to do. And this is something that there's a book called Extreme Ownership with Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And it's something I've thought long and hard about and started to incorporate into my world. Is it just, it's empowering to step up and go, here's the result looking for. Here's what happened. It was my fault. I take responsibility. Here's how I'm going to fix it. And it, in that debrief, things start to happen and it goes away. But a lot of people don't have the courage or the intention to go to that last bit, which is the response. And, but that's something that's drilled into you guys, isn't it? Well, it is. And, and in the immortal words of Frozen the movie, uh, it, it's all about letting it go. <laughs> uh, and, and I think what happens is, is, is when you – never a wiser phrase ever been coined. Uh, the thing about the debrief and, and why you like it, Gary, and why when people begin to do it culturally is because you don't have to hold on to your mistake. And the accumulation – of holding on to multiple failures is anxiety, depression, dissatisfaction. And what do we do? We, we leave that organisation. We get a new job because we hit the reset button. Here I am. I'm new. I've made no mistakes, no errors. And then off we go, two, three years. Uh, you manage to jag a promotion. Now you're at the level where you can hide your mistakes a bit better and blame everyone else so you stay uh, and you keep moving up. 
and the, I think, well, my observation in organisation is the reason the debrief doesn't exist and we stick with reviews and audits is the clarity and the objectives is not there. So, so, so people use excuses and blame because they actually don't know what they're supposed to do. And that's how this integrated pilot methodology comes together because what it, you've, got to have, you've got to have these simple plans, that communication that we just spoke about earlier where you get that plan or strategy communicated effectively. Um, you've got to get it implemented day-to-day without getting distractions that we spoke about earlier and then, and then debriefing. And the, and the purpose of the debrief is it's, it gives you all the context you need to plan. The reason people don't plan is because they don't debrief. And the reason people don't debrief is because they don't plan. Those two elements are so important. Even if it's a simple, simple, simple task such as you know, I've got to get this package of work out this afternoon. What's my plan? Yeah. Block two hours, nine till 11, turn the phone off, everything until I get it done. That's it. That, that's a plan. The problem with business schools and, and, and uh, the, the, the academic approach to running a business is it is so incredibly labour-intensive and detailed and heavy in analytics that by the time you go and execute upon it, it's all irrelevant. And I see this all the time as an entrepreneur. When I go and make an application for finance, it's, it's, it's the most uh, detailed process known to man where everyone is predicting the future based on forecasts and everything else. And then the world starts and it becomes irrelevant in about five minutes. So, I, you know, I've got to play the game and tick all those boxes. That's what you have to do. And, and look, you certainly, uh, you, certainly have a, you certainly bring more rigour to the process. So don't get me wrong, it's an important part. But it's not the be-all and end-all. It's part of it. We have to take that uh, large amount of work and all of that risk management, all that framework, and execute it every single day. And that's where we, we go from having these complex plans into simple plans executed uh, day-to-day. And that forward momentum... You know, you don't have to win a Super Bowl. You don't have to win a grand final every day. You, you just need to do a PB every day or just one thing or, or even make a decision that I've got no energy today, I can't do anything. And what, what we would do is take ourselves off the flying program, just have a rest. You've said the debrief improves performance by 300%. So it's three times, the three times rule, which we'll get to in a second. But then... At the same time, you've said that some debriefs become too subjective. There are too many people's opinions. How do we avoid that trap? How do we avoid the trap of subjectivity or too many people's opinions? Subjectivity is very easy. Uh, if you don't have a, a slide with the, the, the activity and how we measure the outcome, you can't debrief. You're just having a chat. Uh, and, and look, there's value in having a chat and, and being subjective. That, that's all fine. That's all good social stuff that we have to have inside an organisation. But the social stuff gets better if we're winning. Uh, so, so when we look at, at, at debriefing, it's going to be subjective if everyone at the table doesn't know what their number is to succeed. And whatever that is, you should be able to take a number that needs to be achieved in three years and break it down into a year, a quarter, a month, a week, a day. Uh, and, and when I do my coaching, I, I, bring a, I work on a 90-day cycle. I bring a 90-day objective tracker, just a Google sheet, Again, just super simple. And you would be amazed just sitting down with a team of people, how they cannot agree on what the most important thing is for them to do within the next three months. No idea. They've got to do 50 things, and I guarantee you those 50 things don't get done. The excuse matrix gets broken out at the end of the, end of the quarter, 
and it's everyone else's fault. It's the global economy. It's someone else. It's a vendor. It's always someone else's problem. And, and of course, that's going to happen. But if you try and do too much, and debriefing is very much about it, just walking away just with one thing, even if you plan just one thing, but get it done because when it's done, you know it works or it doesn't work and it's off the table. We don't just keep – it's like running a business is like eating a meal. You don't just keep adding food to the table and having a spoonful everywhere. It's completely unsustainable. You, you finish the meal, you, you, you wash the dishes, and then you go and do something else and then you have another meal. Uh, it, it's just we just – we just choose to, to live in this social political construct when we, when we run a business. Uh, so we've got, to, we've got to accept that that's part of it. That's fine. But just find a couple hours a day to, to bring this structure and framework and you'll find that two hours a day will, will become more and you'll find that all of a sudden, even though you plan 90 days to get this one thing done, you, you actually got it done in two weeks because you had eight people focused on the same job and that is 300% more performance than an average team of eight people gets within, within two weeks. Boo, when you and I are on the road with the Afterburner team, uh, and this is, this is an interesting thing, I, I love it when you can put rubber on the road, so to speak, or rubber on the tarmac. Uh, but we did this road show and went to different towns one after another. And there might have been, I don't know, what, 200 people in each room. And the Afterburner program is about... Boo and his wingman peeps set up scenario, break into teams and you have instructions and you have the enemy, you have a scenario and you and your team have to win. So on the first town, a team loses. You conduct a debrief and it was really interesting. The start of the debrief was what do we set out to achieve? What actually happened? What's our response going to be? And it was really interesting watching a couple of the guys who'd stand up from the teams that didn't do so well. And there was that guilt because another 199 people are looking at them. But once they had the fact that it was uh, an environment, which was a learning environment, an encouraging environment, and was an exercise, what I really took from it, and this, is, this was where this really does hit the tarmac, is that in the debrief, it was evident the team that had lost and not done so well had failed to get, let's call it, jester in the air. And I still remember it to that day. We didn't get jester in the air. Had we got jester in the air, it would have alleviated these problems. We would have won the scenario and we would have taken out the bad guys. So what was interesting is that you guys then took that and included that debrief and the result of the response into the following town. When the same team picked up that debrief in the following town and said, you've got to get Jester in the air. And they did that. That team won and lost no aircraft and won the battle. And to me, it was just a perfect example of watching it from the sidelines is the power of the debrief to work out what, what we set out to do, what happened, how we're going to fix it, is that when you did that effectively, the next team won and saved aircraft humans and everything else. It was very clear because when you debriefed that group, it was evident that they were the only group who knew to get gesture in the air. So I think it's fantastic. The afterburner program for any team is fantastic, but that was a really good example of how this can work, wasn't it? And that's what I I love about the programs. I mean, it's very uh, rare that in life you get to work with with groups of people and, and just watch all of these light bulb moments and 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 put these authentic connections together and because 
And as you saw, uh, Gary, again, just just human nature. If you if you if you looked at what we did there with those two hundred people, and we broke them down into smaller groups. We gave everyone the same information. We gave no one any advantage. They all had to solve the same problem, and we saw eight different solutions to the same problem. That is exactly what happens when companies do not invest in getting their strategy to execution. They have uh, a message which everyone nods their heads and says, yep, it gets interpreted, and it's human nature to completely bomb burst and, and, and tangentialize and go off and interpret it their own way. Uh, and, and, and that's that the debrief is how we, we keep coming back. We keep checking back in on what's the intent versus what's actually going on. So we can keep nudging these large groups of people back on track towards the, the same direction in, in fighter pilot culture. We know this is so important. The best fighter pilot in the entire, uh, force spends two years as a standard, standardization officer, even with all the structure that we have. Even with the, the high-performing mindset, we still understand that someone needs to check every squadron, needs to be the master of the, the way in which we do things to make sure that we, we stay aligned. And I'll tell you right now, most companies I work with, that person or the reason for that, even uh, high-performance sporting teams, uh, the uh, uh, Olympic coaches have not uh, had the penny drop about how important that particular role or even if you don't create the role as a person, how important acknowledging that as a human being, our standards always slip. As a human being, we're always distracted. As a human being, we all interpret things differently, that we have to spend time and effort bringing people uh, back together. And, and, and you can't do that without a simple plan, with a simple objective uh, for everyone to rally around and debrief every day. And you'll get there. You, you will get to that objective. Whatever your life goal, you want a million dollars, you'll get there. If you just stick to it and you do this process every day, tell me about the red team. How do I how do I form? How do I use a red team? Well, red team is a another thing we're not very comfortable um, with conducting. So I spoke about the optimism bias. Now, there's a great YouTube on optimism bias. A psychologist out of the US uh, just just Google it, uh, and it, it's it's just about uh, it's kind of a survival um, and evolution. The gene inside of us. It makes us go and do dumb stuff without really any real consideration of the risk, right? It's, it's the thing that you know, got us through the industrial era and, and, and got us to this point now in the, in the information age. Uh, another way that that manifests itself is, is through as a, a phenomenon called um, the confirmation bias. And, and what that means is you know, if we want to get something done, we'll, we'll go and find the data and the argument to support our case. And and that doesn't necessarily mean uh, what we're trying to do is the right thing. Uh, and, and, and what we learned as uh, fighter pilots is we have to add a check and balance before you go out and execute. This might be a sales call. It might be a big presentation. It might be a meeting. But a red team is someone who is going to critically analyze what you're go- about to go and do. Uh, and this is a one-way conversation where someone who knows you uh, knows your business, knows what you're trying to achieve, just asks a few salient questions around your, around your plan. Well, what, what are you trying to do? How are you going to do it? Have you thought about this? Because uh, what, what happens, and, and find this next time you have a meeting. One of the other things in a meeting, always go or a sales call, always take two people because you can only do one thing at a time. So while you're opening your mouth and executing, you can't analyze your performance. When there's two of you, that's why we 
That's why we've in, indoctrinated the concept of a wingman. Every single thing you do, do with someone else to help you. Someone can think, and the red team's the person that can think and can emotionally detach themselves from the situation, whereas the person who's going to execute and lead is emotionally invested. They provide that check and balance to make sure everything you're doing is logical, it's sound, and you haven't, uh, you're not buying into your own bullshit story too much. Uh, and 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 you're going to go and put in our in our in our world of the fighter pilots, yours and other people's lives in jeopardy uh, because you're um, too optimistic in the outcome. You haven't thought of everything. And and typically, a red team picks up the obvious area errors, which is. Yeah. Is everyone, have we got the right people flying the mission? Has everyone got their qualifications right? Is the weather okay? Did you look at the weather in the target area? Uh, are there enough jets serviceable? Um, have you got the latest amendment to, to the way in which we do business? Did you read and check the standard operating procedures? So it's, it's basic stuff. But, but humans aren't very good at, at doing the basic stuff well. Um, so the red team helps us mitigate our inability to be emotionally disengaged in, in trying to achieve a successful outcome. Boo, what's chasing the needle? How does that show up in a business scenario? It's, it's such, a, such a cool term and it's something that pilots deal with. What's it mean to chase the needle? Uh, chasing the needle, when we talk about needles, we, we don't really have these anymore, but back in the day, air, aircraft used to have uh, instruments and every instrument had a needle on it to tell it point at how high you are, how fast you're going, which direction you're going in. And when pilots chase the needle, it means they've reverted back into completely reactive mindset where they're making impulsive decisions uh, based on uh, what they see right now rather than why is it, is it, uh, why is it saying that. And one of the, one of the issues in, in operating in a three-dimensional environment is things can let go very, very quickly. Uh, every single uh, action that you take in an aircraft has an opposing reaction somewhere else. So, you put the rudder in, it also makes the wings uh, bank over. You push forward on the throttle, it also makes the, the nose go up or down, depending on the aircraft. Every time you touch something, something else changes. So what we've learned is you, you need a single point of reference for everything you do that drives your behaviour and, and, and drives a, a comment. We call it fly the plane, aviate. Uh, and there's one instrument that is completely uh, indicative of what, of what we're doing now. And, if, if we, and we spend 80% of our time doing that. So you think of it in terms of business, it's 80% of the time is spent doing your job. Just don't worry about other people. Don't worry about the result right now. Just focusing on your job and the, and the outcome. And when we do that, we, we read an instrument, we, we see what it says, and we say, okay, well, that's what it's saying now. I need some more context. I'm still flying. I'm still doing my job. I'm still going straight ahead. I look at another piece of information, another, and I build this picture, and that's what situational awareness is all about. We take every piece of information with a grain of salt and it's the sum of all of the parts that equal the right response and the right answer. And, and chasing the needles, when that's happening and we start acting that way, it's an immediate cue to us that we've, we've fallen behind the aircraft. We're not ahead of the game. And when you're ahead of the game, uh, everything becomes easier. You are ahead of the conversation. You're ahead of the customer. You're expecting a certain response. You're ready for them to say no. You're always one step ahead of, of everyone else. So, so chasing the needles is an analogy for being uh, completely reactive and responsive in life and in everything you do, uh, whereas we say what you've got to do is fly the plane. Uh, focus on where you're going, your destination, and focus on your activities. Chasing the needles is the external world. 
when, when a needle's moving, it's because something's happened that we didn't do. We didn't put that input in. We didn't want that response. But if I focus on it, what I actually need to do is stay straight and level and flying without hitting the ground, that's going to come unstuck really, really quickly. The OODA loop is a process you talk about and hearing you mention chasing the needles and having more situational awareness Talk us through the OODLIP because that sounds to be from hearing your stuff that that would be a tool we could get used to in our own mind to not chase the needles. Would that be right? It is. It's, it's just a way of adding context again to everything that, that we do. Um, we, we live in a world of, of act, act, act. Uh, don't, we don't really – the world moves faster and our competition moves and digital disruption means everything's moving faster than, than we're able to comprehend. Uh, so when, when it comes to OODA – that, then that's the world of a fighter pilot. There's always too much information. Uh, everything changes way too quickly for you to keep tabs on. So you've just got to try and, 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 and process that information. No human being on a planet has total SA and no human being on the planet can possibly consume the amount of information a fighter pilot has to consume um, at speed. So what we, what we learned was well, given that we can't do that because the human's not designed to it and if we just act, act, act and, and we're responsive, we end up hitting the ground or getting shot down. Uh, and this is where Western Air Forces are so dominant. How do we? How do we? How do we not do that? So, if you think of UDA, the A stands for act. So, so we thought, well, if we're acting all the time, how do we act in the best way possible to achieve the best outcome? So, the first thing we did was add the first O, and that stands for observe. So, just observe what's going on around you and very quickly make a, a, an analysis. It doesn't have to be the right analysis. Just it has to observe something and, and observe something that's going on around you. Uh, once you're observing what's going on, then you need to orientate yourself to take advantage of this situation. Uh, so in, in, in any business, you're observing the trends. Uh, orientate means you're positioning yourself to take advantage uh, using your technology, your product, your people. You're observing the world around you. Now we're going to orientate ourselves to take advantage of this position. What we're, while we're orientating ourselves and getting ourselves ready, there's going to come a time where we've got to make a decision. Now, we might not be comfortable that we're there yet, but that's okay because what we're going to do is make that decision anyway and we're going to break down our business model and instead of making big decisions that are hard to reverse, we're going to make much smaller ones every day that we can that we can reverse. And once we make that decision, our team of people, they're going to act. And when they act, something's going to happen. It has to. Either nothing, which is something, or or something happens that we're either expecting or not expecting. And the only way we know what's happened is by observing it again. And we observe what's happened. And based on the information that comes back, we orientate ourselves again, we make another decision, we act, and then the changes again. And we observe what happens, we orientate ourselves and make it. And this constantly happens. And it's designed for a fighter pilot in a dogfight where you're moving in three dimensions Everything is changing on a microsecond by microsecond basis. And the faster you can get through the OODA loop, the better your chances of succeeding. And interestingly, a lot of law firms in the US have been using the OODA loop to manage caseload and, uh, and to manage litigation because it's a very fast-moving environment. Uh, and it allows them to see uh, how their they case is presented, what the response is, and, and then uh, modify their case uh, for the closing statements, etc., uh, and and then when we when we look at what we talk about at Afterburner, which is the flex methodology, 
it's just a bit more detail around that. It's it's build a plan, build a plan, communicate it to everyone. It's it's the how to. The UDA is the conceptual framework and what we're trying to operate. It's the touchy feely philosophical stuff, um, and, and then the flex methodology, plan, brief, execute, debrief are the real life how to steps that you can take to execute the OODA loop. It's interesting. I can only imagine the world that you guys lived in. And I, I spoke to your wingman peeps at Afterburner long and hard about this over dinner. And he talked about the fact that you guys are basically, during that time as a pilot, you are conditioned to live and deal with stress every day. Now that you're not in the cockpit anymore, Boo, do you find yourself still craving it because you were conditioned to deal with it? Is it something that now is a part of your own personal DNA? Like, do you actually find yourself needing stress almost to feel fulfilled? Uh, well, the good news is I don't have to go find it, mate. It just comes and seeks me out. <laughs> um, so I think, I think, I think, you know, when you're a leader and you're operating in startup businesses or, or businesses that are a bit crook and, and need to be knocked into shape, there's, there's plenty of stress. You, you've got the immediate stress of cash flow. Uh, you've got the immediate stress of, of uh, winning customers and clients. You're, you're very much at the forefront. You've got to, you've got to sell and selling is a, is, is, is a, as a, as a fighter pilot skill. And, 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 and one of the things in business, because no one's on the same page and no one knows the language, you know, it's, it's, it's a very stressful and, and difficult uh, process, um, let alone uh, f- for me in the background, I've got, you know, the stress of a medical condition that's, uh, that's chronic and never gets better. It only, it's degenerative in its nature. Uh, and um, having a couple of kids and, and navigating them through there, uh, divorce, uh, separation, um, you know, uh, litigation from crazy people that decide that, you know, they, they, they want to uh, have an argument with you. Uh, moving house, you know, I think we, we do a lot of work around stress in the Air Force and they show you. And I think at any point in my time of, time of life, I've, I've pretty much had the top four stresses operating uh, at all the time. But it really just goes back to what I said before. If you, just, if you just apply the methodology to every situation and you're allowed to deal with it in a far less emotive way, you're you able to bring uh, items back to, to logic. And, and then you start feeding in a whole extra layer, which is I'm thinking and acting this way other people aren't, therefore, they're emotional about the situation. And what, what you learn in, is in these situations is if you pull back from that, if you pull back from that, you're ahead of the aircraft, you're waiting for everyone else to catch up, let the emotion die out. Let the, let, let, and, and you're able to influence people in a way which is don't tell people what to do. Give them a plan, give them a role within there and let them make up their own mind. And by and large, if it's a good plan, you're a good leader who's consultative and you don't make decisions unilaterally, uh, people will come on, on board with that. And that reduces your stress. I think a lot of stress comes around about because people are trying to get things done and it's not happening in their time frame. People aren't getting on board with them. And this methodology where we, we think we tell someone what to do because we're in charge and they're going to do it, doesn't it? It doesn't exist. We, to explain it simply, mate, we create stress. Stress is a choice. A situation is what it is. You then have a choice. Uh, you can you can get stressed by it, which will which will reduce your performance. It will, and by performance, I mean just resolving it. Uh, or uh, you can you can manage the stress. It's it's still stress. You can't unless you're a sociopath or a, you, and you don't have no feelings about anything. You are going to feel stressed about the situation because you are out of control of it. Uh, 
But if you apply uh, this simple way of thinking, you never get in control of it, but you certainly manage your way through it better and the stakeholders and the people you engage, you, you will manage, you will, you will resolve issues much, much faster and you don't end up with this big hangover of, of, of hate and complexity that comes about from uh, not managing stress very well. Having been through all you've been through, Boo, and you just mentioned your own family challenges, with being in the cockpit as a high-performance elite jet fighter pilot, now having been through great success and, and also challenges with your own entrepreneurial lifestyle, and you've got businesses going, you're on your feet talking to audiences about the methodologies that come from being a jet fighter pilot. If you went back to your family to have a go at it again, what's the biggest thing you'd change? Because it's it's fascinating that you have all these things you could do in a cockpit at the highest, highest level when it's all on the line. Yet a lot of people have a hard time putting that into their own relationships at home. What, what have you learned? How would you approach it differently? Look, I think in – well, I wouldn't. Um, I, even though those are my situations, it's all worked out for the best of everyone. Um, I think that's, that's the key is uh, don't hold on to a bad situation. Um, don't don't – uh, I, I think what happens is, is people build a belief structure around this and, and then when a relationship breaks or deteriorates – um, the belief structure makes them behave in a way that's incredibly hostile. Uh, I think if you can, if you can just say, "Well, look, you know, that that's the situation for what it is." Uh, now we have to plan uh, for a new life, which looks differently, and and then you've got to identify the most important resource, and in in, in my case, that's that's kids, and and you just need to accept that maybe what you believed, what you wanted, is just not going to happen for you. That's observing the world around you. So I need to reorientate myself, make a decision about doing it a different way and then act. And guess what? When you make the right decision and you act, the stress, the tension, it all goes away because you've disengaged from the fight because you weren't going to win it, uh, but you won the war. The war is the kids, they're happy, super content, and both um, the parents are also much happier uh, living living a good life. Uh, But you have to bring a logical framework to that and you also have to be uh, nameless and rankless with yourself about your belief systems and, and, and what, what you thought was going to happen doesn't necessarily happen. And, and that, again, let it go. Uh, actually, an interesting point about let it go. Um, I'm not going to give you a rendition <laughs> of that. The, um, working with, with, working in, with athletes, uh, they're very good at letting things go and, and patting on the back dropping a ball, uh, making an error, um, come on, mate, get over it, you'll be right. Uh, and that's good. That, that's good pulsi right there. Uh, but, but one of the things that doesn't happen is the debrief that's associated with that, which is let it go but learn something from it. And if you do that, the percentage chance of you, just like we spoke about giving the, the debrief point to the other team, the percentage chance of you repeating that error next time, if you added a little 10-second debrief, reduces by half, at least. Letting go without learning, you don't learn. Letting go without learning is makes you, makes you feel better but not as good as you can feel uh, through just doing a quick uh, analysis of your performance and what you do next time to prevent that from happening. I heard you mention your own view on failure, 
Boo, which I really liked. And this one's you to elaborate. You said good things that, that failure is good things that have. You, you talked about failure and you had an interesting perspective on failure. And you said in life, there are good things that happen and other things that happen. There's no failures. No bad things happen. That's right. Just run that for us. In a squadron. And again, I didn't really appreciate this and, until after Burner and maybe to the last few years. We just don't use the words failure, mistake, um, errors. We, we accept that all of that is just part of doing business. It's, 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 an, it's something that happens that you didn't want. And, and when we do a debrief, we have good things that happen, which is the plan, and other things, which were things that we've learned from. And even there, you just decompress the emotional connection to making an error. Because fundamentally, uh, and, and I believe, success is, is just the diminishing of errors. You, you'll never get rid of an error. You'll, yeah, you, you'll I'll just podcasting you looking around the house and I can see 10 errors already just looking around, <laughs> things that aren't, aren't what they, you would want them to be in an ideal world. Uh, so so that's, that's a given, right? Uh, but so, so if, we, if we accept that we're going to make these errors and fail, the importance of, of having one goal, one outcome where we try and diminish them as much as possible through this, through this in, and this is where per, this is, you know, when, you, when people talk about purpose uh, in life and fulfilment, it's, it's just a big buzzword unless you actually do it. And, and doing it comes through the focus and, and through the elimination of more and more errors and, and, and learning more and more and more all the time until you become incredibly proficient in the skill sets you need uh, to, to achieve this goal that you, that you want to achieve. So, we, so, so rather than build an emotional attachment to failure, the way that you – you're going to, right? There's nothing you can do. Failure sucks um, and ma- making a big mistake sucks. It feels awful. Whether it's a, a relationship or at work or, you know, the frustration with misplacing your wallet or keys in the morning. No one goes out to do that, but it happens and it's frustrating. So what we've got to do as quick as get out of that, get out of that frustrating mindset as quickly as we can. Um, and, and, and the debrief is the tool that you use to decompress the emotional connection with an error. And, and, one of the reasons uh, I think we struggle with getting things done now uh, and just looking at this new research that's coming out around smartphones is, is the link between uh, dopamine and addiction on a, on a smartphone that's the same as, as cig- cigarettes and alcohol, right? Um, real real uh, contentment and fulfilment comes from, from serotonin, uh, not from dopamine. And serotonin only comes about through... Uh, the, the building of, of community, support, safety, uh, and, and feeling uh, connected. And, and, and debrief is where I think by, by self-identifying errors and if we can't, having someone help us in a supportive peer group that is, that is driven towards performance improvement uh, gradually builds and reinforces serotonin. And I'm doing a bit of work on this with a an NRL team, and it's, it's actually yielding some pretty amazing results at the moment. Um, and, and all of a sudden, everyone goes home from work every day, and there's, they've got, they, have, they don't have to worry about the person they let down. They don't have to worry about the mistake. It's all been dealt with. It's done. It's finished. And I'm going home knowing tomorrow I've got something positive to do. I'm going to try this new thing. I know that I need to get focused, and I was distracted because of X, Y, and Z. And, and guess what? They do it, and 80% of the time they get a better result and that gives them serotonin. Uh, it's 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 really an incredible cycle. And 
the beauty of it is, and I was thinking again in this morning uh, in the shower, for, for example, my, I'm just not where I need to be at exercise right now. And, and I have this thought, it was like, okay, I've got to get fit uh, by September. And, and, I, and I berate myself because I'm like, mate, it's just such a vague, generic bullshit goal. Like, what does that mean? You know, and, and then I came back, I said, okay, I'm going to do, uh, get changed, I'm going to do 20 push-ups. And I'm going to do 20 push-ups every day until it becomes 25. That's it. And, and that, I did that and I felt better. I, I just made the first step. Um, and I still don't know what fit looks like in September. I, I know that's my big goal, but there's not, I'm not going to get anywhere near it if I don't do something about it today. And that is a number. It's an, it's an action and I can measure whether I've done it or not. Just to close this out, Berg, I'm conscious of your time, um, but we started the show talking about being in the cockpit, what a high-performance jet fighter pilot goes through with checklists. And I heard a comment you make that a pilot will take the attitude of more how when thinking about checklists. And the reason I'm closing with that is because we, from day one, we looked to do a show that has great guests like yourself, gold through the show, but stuff you can do things with, not just philosophical and nice chat, but stuff you can take away, finish the show and execute upon. And I like that idea of when thinking checklists, a pilot will take the attitude of more how. Just just take us through that. So one of the things you are very aware of in a fighter squadron is, is if, if you're doing your job, your real job, then something very bad has happened in the world. So you're, you're, you're aware that if that's going to happen, that there's some very young new people in your squadron that are going to go into an environment where they could get hurt or or hurt somebody else. So, so the way in which we're going to keep these people safe and everyone else uh, safe within the um, combat operation is to bring them up to speed as quickly as possible. And one of the things that leaders are great at doing is figuring out what everyone needs to do. And we get these big shopping lists of all the actions that need that that uh, that everyone has to go and do. What most people are unaware of is 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 actually how they're going to do that, and and how much effort it takes to do every single thing, particularly if there's more than one person involved. So as a fighter pilot, if we're if we're sitting there in a debrief or in a mission plan or in a mentoring or coaching session, we're not telling the fighter pilot what they need to do tomorrow to be better. We're we're identifying for them how they're going to do that. And it's a collaborative process where we ask questions, where we put the, we put the conversation back on that, on that young uh, pilot or anyone really. Because one thing we, we know is every, every single thing we do, if it's new, we all get together as a team and we all go through this process to go a bit like meerkats. <laughs> oh, this is new. This is something we haven't done before. We better all get back together here, work out another quick plan uh, brief and execute it, see how we go and quickly debrief to see how we can tighten up as quickly as possible. Um, so more how is how are we going to improve that? And, and, and whilst it's got an element to it in checklists, the more how is really in the debrief. Here's, here's, here's how we do it. Just is going to get airborne tomorrow. That's how you're going to do it. That's how you're going to stop this gap. Go do that. They go and do it. And guess what? The gap closes. Their performance improves. You know what, mate? They're going to make another mistake. Something else is going to happen but we're going to learn something from that as well. So it's an accelerated learning curve, um, which, which enables these kids uh, to, be, to become proficient uh, within, uh, from, from, from a newbie in the squadron 
uh, to a four-ship lead in, in two, two and a half years. Boo, this has been terrific. And I'm going to close by saying, because I've been on the road and seen you do your Afterburner show a number of times, I, I honestly have got about a half a dozen pages in my journal, which made prepping for this show very easy because there's just so much gold that comes from you and Peeps and all the other guys in the Afterburner program. Where, with all you've got going on, where is the hub for Christian Bacusis? Where Where do you send people? Afterburner.com.au is uh, the simple uh, place, uh, destination to find us, mate. And from there, we would hope that there's enough information for you for people to um, begin their journey of, of discovery. It's a very, very, very broad content base. Uh, so really um, get in touch. Uh, uh, let us know where, where the headache is, uh, what you're trying to fix or what, what the big goal is you're trying to achieve and, and we'll tailor the product. You know, every organisation is different. Everyone has different strengths and weaknesses and we can tailor the content and the framework um, to help very specifically each organisation. Just one final thing, and this is just something that occurred to me in speaking to you today on the show. I was, I still remember we were, I forget what town we were in, we were lining up for dinner and we're about to order our steak. And I was talking to Peeps, your wingman. And I said, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm interviewing Todd Herman, and he wrote a book called The uh, Alter Ego Effect. Did you have an alter ego as a pilot? And I hadn't even finished. He went, yep. He said, I had three. He said, when I was in the cockpit, he said, I was feral. I just had to win. I was just a dogfight. I did whatever it took. I was feral. But being on the ground... And having, as a wing commander and having 260 in his team today on the ground, he said, I've got to be a different a different alter ego on the ground as a leader. Then when I get at home, I've got to get on the trampoline with the kids and just be a dorky dad. And I told that story to Todd Herman and he said it was really interesting because it was a good point that you can have different alter egos for different things. And every time during the Afterburner program, <laughs> You, of course, make reference to Top Gun and Maverick and Goose, and, of course, all the audience laughs. My question is, is alter ego ever been part of Boo's world? Do you have an alter ego for any aspect now of your life and or in your past? I, I think you have to. I think, uh, and, and particularly uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I had some issues around PTSD, uh, I think when you're operating in an environment where, where human beings are not their best selves, you, you become incredibly tough and your body uh, effectively undergoes a, a physiological transformation where, where it, it builds all of these uh, structures inside to make you resilient to that. And when you come back into the first, first world and first world problems, you, you're very intolerant of it because the context of the problem is not what you're familiar with. Uh, so then you learn to manage that. And I was sort of introduced to um, cognitive behavioural therapy then and, and that's where I sort of thought, oh, hang on, that sounds a bit like what well, I used to do as a fighter pilot and all, all, the whole world sort of came together from a from from um, best practice in psychology into what we used to do as fighter pilots just um, without psychologists just because that was the best thing that kept you alive. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm at my, my, my who I am is very – I was a very sooky kid. I'm a very gentle person. Uh, but what I've learned is – that doesn't get results all the time with people who aren't like that. Uh, and, and sometimes some people aren't very uh, uh, nice. And one, one of the things that annoys me so much about business is when people say, oh, it's business, 
I can treat you like shit. I can be, be crook because it's business. I, I don't believe in that at all. And I saw a lot of that when I was in the Middle East. Uh, but, you know, that's not my game. But I'll certainly step up to the plate and play those people at that game. So that for an alter ego for me is I can be you know, just like peeps. I can be incredibly aggressive and pointed and uh, I, I certainly won't back down, but it takes – and I think people underestimate me in that way, um, but, but, but my fuse takes is, is very, very, very long. But, but when it's lit, uh, all resources come to bear and, um, and, and we, we, re- we, we really win in that scenario. Uh, with my kids, I, I try not to be too gentle uh, with them because I, I, I love them. I'm very expressive with that. But at the same time, I hold them accountable for, for, for how they, their behavior and cleaning up around the house and doing their jobs and playing their sport and doing their homework because I don't think we're going to do them any favors by being uh, this big mushy persona um, as, uh, as a dad. Uh, you know, you've still got to be, give them hugs and be, be physical. Uh, but it's definitely, a, definitely a, a, a gentle aversion. And I, 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 I say this, some people think it's a bad thing, some things say it's a good thing, but I was sitting with my, my business partner, Tom, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, and, and we, we grew very quickly because we kind of just got on with everyone. And, and we said we were a little bit like chameleons in that we, we really we could identify the environment we're in, the personality types, and adapt very quickly to be able to engage at their level. Uh, and, and therefore, everything we did made sense to them. And I think, is that alter ego? I'm, I'm not really an academic of that. I don't really... I don't, I don't have a deep enough understanding to call that alter ego, but, but to be able to adapt and, and explain things at any man's level and any language, yeah, I, definitely able to do that. I think, it's, I think it's a type of it. I think it, there's probably a whole show in how you could debrief that bit, but I think it's a type of it. And just to close this out, I'm going to hand to Robbo for the big question. However, it's, it's, it's interesting that when I think of you and all the things we talked about with jet fighter pilots, I think of Tom Cruise Top Gun and Danger Zone. Uh, but I don't think we can go there, Robbo. Would you frame the big question for Boo, please? Let me put this to you, Boo. You're uh, out of bed in the morning. Uh, you're dreaming of going Mark IV. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the mojo... That is a dream. The mojo, that is a dream. The, the, that is a dream. The mo- but the mojo's not quite there today. For some reason, your, your mind's not talking to your body and sort of getting everything going. So... On, on your way to the airfield in the car, what's, what's the song that Boo puts on the radio or, you know, uh, puts on his headphones while he's, getting, while he's gearing up to get his mojo fired up suitably to take the next step? Let it go, man. Let it go. <laughs> my, my five-year-old daughter would love you. I don't, know if, I don't know if we could do that here. Can we do I that? Don't that we, I don't know that that qualifies. Have you got a second choice? Yeah. <laughs> we'll play a grab, but what else you got, buddy? Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back. I think uh, I, I think for me, you, you know what? This is a very uh, fun fact. Um, I don't really listen to music. Um, I'm not. I, I don't have that oral uh, engagement. Uh, but 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 I, I think for me, you, you want it to be highway to the danger zone, don't you, mate? I do. I, I think that's I, it. That's really, all I can hear. My, that's the soundtrack yeah. I can yeah. hear for you. But yeah, it doesn't yeah, mean okay. that you have to run with that. Look, let's run with it. Let's let, let's uh, <laughs> let's run with it. Um, <laughs> 
And and hi to Goose and Maverick if you're listening. And yeah. Jester and, and Viper. Jester. Yeah. Well, Mav's filming, Mav's filming Top Gun too, so I'm sure he's soaking up all his fighter pilot gouge at the moment. Uh, you're excited, right. aren't you, Boo? You are. No, I'm excited. You are, Get a cranky you are so excited. Yeah. Do you know what, Boo? I, I, you might understand this. We were talking before the show and about my brother being a Qantas pilot, and I remember vividly uh, uh, when that, once that movie came out on video back then, coming home daily after school for, I would say, a good six months. And the first thing that went on the television was my brother sitting down in front of the television with a bowl of cereal watching Top Gun. <laughs> that we, every afternoon, I swear to God, without, without fail for about six months, that movie was on the TV. I'll tell you what's incredible, uh, Robert, when, I, when we take the mick out of that uh, on, our, on the, my presentation, we ask people to put their hands up who's seen Top Gun. And it, I'm yet to be in a room, even with, with, with uh, millennials, where you, 90% of the room doesn't put their hand up. Yeah. And, yeah. and then when you say, who's seen it more than five times, every, <laughs> every white Anglo-Saxon male uh, has, yeah. has, their, has their hand up over the age of 40. So um, yeah. it's, 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 an enduring, it's an enduring film, that's for sure. Yeah, it is, Absolutely. Well, Boo, this has been awesome. Not only is the content gold and usable practical stuff everywhere from home right through to the boardroom, but it's also good to catch up, mate. I haven't seen you for a couple of months now. Uh, Glad things are good. Glad you're still doing great entrepreneurial work. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, mate, because I do know how much you've got going on. Uh, thanks, a, thanks a lot, Gary. It's always a pleasure, mate, and I really love the opportunities we have to uh, contemplate the world. It's always, always fulfilling for me, mate. Thank you. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. I loved that interview, but it took me back about oh, 20 years. What is the biggest, bestest promotion that you remember that we did in our time at the Osterio Network? Uh, easy. Red Angel. Uh-huh. And what was that? Tell me about that, Mr. Head of Promotions. Well, it was an idea we had uh, to put somebody, basically as another great producer of the world, Tomo, uh, said, it was to take the first ever civilian and put them into the black stuff, looking back mm. down at the blue stuff. So it was putting mm. a civ- it was the first civilian that we put into space. That's right. So the, the prize was to win a trip into space. And someone won it. And I still look back at that and go, that's sort of if you can dream it, you can do it stuff. And that's partly what this show's about. So um, I just look back at that and go, wow. I had that poster for about 15 years after leaving radio, but it was just the poster, like everything we did with that promotion, was just bigger than bigger than anything. (laughs) And the poster was just bigger than my house. So I ended up getting rid of it. I don't even know where it is now, but I wish I'd have kept it and put up in my woodshed. But um, that was legitimately probably one of the biggest radio promotions of all time. Mm -hmm. And if you look at going back then to to putting somebody into space and now it's thought of putting somebody on Mars to live, it was kind of a step. We could could say it was almost a step. The triple M was yeah. a stepping stone to Elon Musk and Richard Branson. Absolutely. Absolutely. I should qualify that too because the link here is that you it was in a Russian MiG, right? You went into the stratosphere in a Russian MiG fighter. Wouldn't it be good if we had Tomo's primer? The Mojo Radio Show. All right, let's wrap up this little shindig. For those who are interested in tracking down Christian Boo Bakusis. Call sign. We've got to get ourselves call signs. You've got one, Robbo. I don't have one. I've got to get one. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's beside the point. Um, you'll find him at afterburner.com.au. 
www.boo.com.au, which is the program they run. I've done a lot of work with Boo and Peeps, call sign Peeps, and it's a fantastic corporate program for teams. I highly recommend it. Uh, you'll find them at Afterburner online. Uh, let's go out today. You had an interesting, actually, it's a, let's call it a triple R, a rock remarkable Robbo segment. <laughs> That's a stretch. <laughs> it is. But are you familiar with the story of Van Halen and the brown M&Ms? Uh, I am, but let's let's go yeah. to the horse's mouth. Yeah, uh, Lola, can you play the piece you and I found the other day about Van Halen and the brown M&Ms, please? I'm on it. One thing Van Halen did to make sure that the venues would really read their contract writers really carefully is they would say, we want, you know, this much food. A certain amount of cigarettes, certain amount of cigarette lighters. Breakfast for the crew at 6 o'clock. We need this much beer, this type of beer. We want This much staging. Everything had to be exactly just so. In order to make sure that the promoters read the writer thoroughly in small print. We want M&M's. But with all the brown ones removed, no brown M&M's. Well, if they're going to not read it, they made that mistake. Well, that means they're going to forget the 40 feet of staging or the 18 points for lighting. Van showed up. They saw brown M&M's. They missed brown M&M's. Flip well, out. Trash, trash. They trashed the room. I love that story. No brown M&M's. What's remarkable about that, people can use this, is that it used to go around as a myth about how pretentious rock and roll bands are. Yet that story just goes to show that it was really about attention to detail. And in this day and age right now with people are so busy, multitasking, run off their feet, having a hard time focusing with a lack of discipline, even today that would be a fantastic thing to put in your rider to make sure that it was being read, the contract was being read Front, front page to back page, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. I mean, and they're so right. If you can't get the brown M&Ms right, how are you going to get the lighting rig correct, the sound, the blah, 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 the seating arrangement, blah, all the rest of the important stuff? So I think it's great. There's a lesson in there for sure. Where this fits into life or where I first came to understand that the myth wasn't about pretentious rock and roll bands, but it was oh. actually about precision and detail and reading contracts was in a book called The Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Right. And it's by, oh, I can't pronounce his name, but it's Atul Gawande, A-T-U-L-G-A-W-A-D-E. <laughs> some, some guy from overseas. Yeah. It is one of the books I recommend when I'm out uh, doing speaking jobs. People say, can you give me a recommended book list? It is on my list because I love it and I do use checklists a lot and so does my family now. Just because with so much going on, the power of a checklist just means that it's down in front of you and it's one less thing for your brain to have to remember. The Checklist Manifesto is a great book. It does talk about this. So all I'm saying is there is a business application and it's not just about pretentious rock and roll bands. Having said all that, what track should we get Lola to play to take us out this week? Let's something Van Halen. What do you want to play? Well, Lola was a bit hot for John Bon Jovi last week, so I reckon this week I'm a little bit hot for teacher. Far out. <laughs>
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com.
For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.